Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to the February All In for Citrus podcast. I am your host, Taylor Hillman, and our correspondent, Ernie Neff, will be joining us shortly. We only have three interviews this month for the podcast, but we're making them count with all the topics we're covering. In this episode, we get updates on the nutrition boxes and how participation and samples are going, a new citrus agent on the IFAS team and the process in looking for a new vice president, maximum residue level changes are happening for some export markets, and Asian citrus psyllid control even in groves that are fully infected with Wang Lungbing disease. As always, here's Ernie Neff with the leader of the C-Rec team. I'm with Michael Rogers, who's always on our podcast. Michael is the director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alfred. Thanks for joining us again, Michael. As usual, it's good to be with you, Ernie. Michael, it's been several months since IFAS kicked off the Citrus Nutrition Box program. What's going on with that? How is it going? Okay, well, I think it's going really well. Uh, this past fall, we had a series of meetings around the state um, where we uh, started off with a kind of a mini workshop on citrus nutrition uh, to bring growers up to date on the latest on citrus nutrition topics and what we're finding. And then the second part of those meetings, uh, we, we kicked off this citrus nutrition box program. And as part of that, growers were, were learned about the boxes we gave out um, they're, they're being used to help growers sample the nutrient status of their trees to help adjust their fertilization programs. And at those meetings, all told, we, we gave out um, 117 nutrition boxes. And, and to date, we've had 75 growers who've taken those boxes and have been submitting samples, actively participating in this program, um, that we're trying to help growers you know, tailor their, their nutrition program. And those 75 growers represent about 18 counties across the state. So we've got really good representation across the state of Florida. So really, I would say that the response has been good. It's what, it, probably what we hope for. Um, it's not too many, but it's not too little. I think we've, we've kind of hit a pretty good spot of, of the workload anyways. Sounds just right. When the samples are submitted, what happens? So... When a grower um, is taking samples, they'll, they'll use the kit, they'll collect the samples from the field, and then they send it off to the lab. And the lab will then send the results directly back to IFAS, where we work to customize the recommendations, fertilize recommendations for growers based on the results from their grove. Who at IFAS is involved in making recommendations? So every couple of weeks, we have a group of our IFAS extension specialist, you know, horticulture, nutrition specialist, as well as our citrus agents will get together um, here in Lake Alfred usually. They, they take all the results that have come in, they sit down and they go over the results. And then the, what they do is they take those results to develop recommendations that are specific to each grove. They're doing these one at a time. So these groves are getting very customized individual attention. And it's, it's been really interesting because they, they've had some challenges. Some of the results come back, and it, it, it's not always straightforward. They actually have to, as a group, they'll sit down and talk through and argue, maybe, well, maybe argue or discuss what the results are and how to, how to get the desired outcome. I, get, I mean, one example is we've seen a lot of cases where there's been some pH issues, and, and, how, and pH can actually interact with certain nutrients. And so they're having to figure out how to increase certain nutrient levels, and it ultimately probably comes down to adjusting the pH, for example. So it's more than just fertilizer, but also pH and how you balance the two to get the optimum balance in the trees. So really, they're, they're given very specialized attention um, to the growers. So I think that's been a, um, 
a very useful exercise in the use of our time. And I also think it's just another good example. We've, we've talked in the past about how you really can't make one recommendation that fits all groves. And this is just a good example because grove by grove, we're seeing how the results, are, the recommendations being developed aren't all the same. They, there's, we're having to make tweaks to make these things fit individual groves. That sounds good. You've got tons of in, input from IFA specialists. So is the Citrus Nutrition Box program having success, do you think? Well, well, the the long-term goal of this Nutrition Box program, of course, is we're trying to improve the health of citrus trees and, and also the, the yield or the productivity. And that's something that doesn't happen overnight. Um, when you put out fertilizer, it takes a while. You've got to start to first turn around the health of those trees, get them to turn the corner. And then over the course of the year or, or more, you want to see the yield and fruit quality go up. So um, we're very early in the program. It's a little, probably a little too early to say we've had success in that in that respect, but as we look at tree health, fruit yield, fruit quality over time, I expect we're going to see improvements. But in the meantime, there is a, still a lot of useful information coming out of the, the program. I think it's going to be valuable not only to individual growers, but as the industry as a whole, because we're, we're seeing trends across the state, region by region, um, for certain things like um, there might be one region in the state where we all the samples we get, we typically have some pH issues or maybe it's a certain nutrient. And it's something that we don't see common in other samples from other parts of the state. So we're seeing some definite trends in certain deficiencies that are region specific. And I think it's really gonna be helpful for us down the road as we work to continue refining our nutrient management recommendations. And it, perhaps, you know, we might even be able to come up with guidance in the future that's even more region specific on fertilization, which is something we don't think we've really done in the past. These results sound promising. Anything else on the Nutrition Box program? I'll just say, you know, we had 75 uh, growers who've sent back, been sent, sent back uh, samples and participating in the program. So it means there's approximately 40 growers who've picked up boxes that haven't, haven't done that yet. If you're interested, you've got a box, it's not too late to go ahead and start. And I just encourage you to do it now before it, before it is a little too late to join in. And because uh, our goal is we want to help as many people as possible. And so if you have a box and haven't started, please do so. Okay, good. Growers, please listen to that. Uh, shifting gears, Michael, last time we talked about the search for a new VP of IFAS. I understand you have an update. Yes, yeah, so um, I think I mentioned last time we have four candidates that have been um, selected, invited uh, to come in and interview for the vice president of IFAS position. And those interviews will be taking place during the month of March. And for each of these four candidates, um, they're all going to go through a three-day interview process. Most of that is in Gainesville, but the third day of each of those interviews is actually going to take place here at the Citrus Research Education Center in Lake Alfred. And the purpose of that is we want to provide a place further south in the state for all of our um, ag industry representatives, growers, other industry personnel, to get a chance to hear from the candidates um, attend a seminar, talk to them, and, and be able to interact and, and provide input as we try to select our next vice president. So we really value the input from our uh, ag clientele around the state, not just citrus, but other commodities as well. And so we hope that you'll take time to um, attend these seminars uh, and, and chances to meet these candidates and provide feedback to us. Okay, we're all done to know who these candidates are. <laughs> You're going to wait a little bit longer, Ernie. Um, right now, we're not making the names of those candidates public because all four of these candidates have very high-profile jobs and in, in big institutions. 
And so we don't want to be any more disruptive than we're going to be to their current job situations as people find out, hey, they're looking for a job or interviewing for a job. So what we'll be doing is a week before each of the interviews, the names will be made public so people know um, who they're coming out to listen to. And um, so just just be on the lookout for that because we will be announcing them about a week in advance of each of the seminars. Let us know when these candidates will be in Lake Alfred, please. Okay, yeah, so we really hope people will come out to Lake Alfred to interact. The first candidate, um, if you can mark on your calendar, Tuesday, March the 10th will be when the first candidate, number one, is in Lake Alfred. The second candidate is later that same week, Thursday, March the 12th. Candidate three will be here Tuesday, March the 17th. And the fourth and final candidate will be in Lake Alfred Tuesday, March the 31st. Um, we're going to have more details coming out closer to time as far as the, as far as the exact schedule, but I expect these are all going to be um, mid-afternoon type events um, where the candidates are going to give a seminar provided by, you know, or well, covering their future vision of IFAS, um, a time for question and answers from the industry, and also followed by a reception to kind of wrap up the day where you get to have some one-on-one interaction with the candidates. So there will be some invitations, go, uh, evites going out, and we hope if you see one and you want to come, please uh, do RSVP because we do need to make sure we got enough food for the whole crowd. Mike, last, we have a new uh, Citrus Extension agent on board. Can you tell us kind of briefly about that? Yes, we're, we're excited that we, you know, we were able to hire uh, Asia uh, Paolillo, and to fill the shoes, I guess, of, of Steve Futch, who in the past covered DeSoto, Hardy, and, and Manatee counties. And uh, Asia began work with us on January 31st of this year. So if growers are looking for Asia, where will they be able to find her? Now, so she's got responsibility for three counties, as I mentioned, but her primary office will be in Arcadia. Um, but in addition to her Arcadia office, where she mainly be working out of, she does have office space both in Wachula and Palmetto. So uh, those are the three office locations. Uh, probably check the Arcadia one, one first, but she'll be working out of all three of those offices. Michael, I think you mentioned before she's got big shoes to fill. I think the growers all know that. Uh, you you want to tell yeah. a little more about that? Yeah, so Steve Futch uh, was a long fixture in our industry. Everybody knows Steve, um, even, both in Florida and even internationally. He's got a great reputation. He did a lot for our industry over the years. Um, just an out, I can't say enough, he was an outstanding extension agent. And, I mean, he's continuing to work as well in the industry still. But um, despite the fact that Asia has some big shoes to fill, I, I think she's going to quickly gain the respect of growers that she's working with. Um, you know, a little bit about her background, she does have a, a bachelor's degree in citrus. She has a master's degree where she focused on extension education. Um, she even worked here at the CREC in Lake Alfred for a number of years. Um, la- the last part was working on the green cur- greening and canker extension program with uh, Jamie Burrow. Um, and most recently, she's worked as an inspector with FDAX. But, but I think most important about Asia is that she really loves the Florida citrus industry, and she feels very strongly and believes strongly in our future. So I really encourage everybody to reach out to her. Um, if you haven't met her, introduce yourself to Asia. Invite her to come see her groves, because I know she's eager to get out and working with everyone in her counties. Michael, as always, thank you very much. Right, thank you, Ernie. Taylor, back to you. Thanks, Ernie and Dr. Michael Rogers, for kicking us off strong with that interview. A reminder about those nutrition boxes. As Rogers said, don't delay if you want to participate. Next up, you could be applying products according to the U.S. label, but still get fruit rejection in overseas markets. We go back out to Ernie for that information and more. I'm with Mark Reitenauer. Mark is the post-harvest horticulturist at the Indian River Research and Education Center, Fort Pierce. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. 
We're going to talk about a few topics today, starting with, I believe, maximum residue limit requirements for export fresh citrus markets. Yeah. About that. Yeah, I really wanted to uh, uh, bring this to people's attention, uh, especially fresh fruit, um, citrus growers, shippers. Uh, we've had a number of different changes. So um, we put together, and I keep track of different uh, maximum residue tolerances for different chemicals, especially pesticides. And um, there we, we have it in the, in the citrus production guide each year. We update it, but there's updates all throughout the year as well. And this um, year we've had a number of different updates, especially related to Europe. And um, so I have a new sheet. If you just Google UF post-harvest or University of Florida post-harvest, you'll come up with our post-harvest website. And about the second tab down in the middle is where we talk about pesticide residues. And that takes you to a sheet, uh, a page where I have this sheet where I've highlighted and specifically separated out um, different materials that we use for uh, fresh citrus in Florida. And then at the top, I have different markets, United States, Canada, Europe, Japan, Taiwan, uh, Korea. It's kind of our major export uh, markets. And so even if we're applying something according to the label rate in the United States, our different trading partners can set whatever uh, limits that they want. And many of those have set very low ones or lower ones than what we have for the United States. So we may be applying it according to the label here, but when it arrives in our export market, it can come, out, uh, come in with excessive residues uh, in their eyes and their standards. Europe is one of the most notorious in terms of lowering their um, residue tolerances or even eliminating them. So I've updated in the past, actually several months, uh, a number of times my sheet on the website. I wanted to, and I've highlighted on there some things that in particular have been changing. Uh, chlorpyrifos, for example, uh, Lorsban, uh, Nufos. This one is something that's coming around quickly. Um, it was, um, the label is expiring for um, use in Europe. So that means people in Europe will not be able to use it, okay? A lot of times, even if it's expired, it means you can um, still ship materials there because there's still a residue for it. They usually don't reduce the, um, the residue tolerances until several years later when um, the product has worked its way through the market over there and such. Um, this one in particular is moving quick. Um, and not only is it expiring, but they've also already proposed dropping the uh, residue tolerance down to 0 0.01 ppm, which is basically the limit of detection. If they detect it, you have now violated um, their residues um, limits. And that means you cannot market there. It's rejected. And then it also can cause other problems in terms of their increased scrutiny on uh, fruit coming from Florida, um, increased monitoring and sampling and a lot of different other things too. Um, we also had um, fenbutanine oxide, Vendex. This is something that's dropped in this uh, past few months, um, probably six months, and um, it's now to 0.01 as well. And so that is something um, that it seems to be sticking around too uh, in terms of residues after um, the fruit's been harvested and actually even shipped. We're still seeing some residues. Haven't had any um, violations in Europe yet, but um, uh, we wanted, we've been working hard at trying to get the word out in terms of some of these changes. So in my, and another confusion sometimes is I have on this, this um, sheet, I have the terms expiring, expired, or non-renewed. That means that those products are, again, not being renewed for label in the country, in the European Union. It doesn't mean they've yet dropped the residue tolerance. 
Um, it's a heads up that, that they will likely be doing it sometime in the future. We don't know when. When I have it says proposed, that means they have actually proposed and notified the WTA, WTO that they are proposing to change those residue tolerances. And so those changes are likely coming sooner unless for some reason they, they, uh, they uh, decide not to make that change. It's still, um, there's still chance often for comment during that period. More often than not, that those are going to go into effect in the near future. And so that's something as you're looking to harvest later on, um, what you're going to be applying in the field and what market you're going to go to. Also on the website, we've got links to the authorities in uh, Europe, Japan, uh, I think Korea, uh, Codex also. But these areas is if you want to go for the... the um, the up-to-date information for those particular countries, you can go there as well. Mark, are these issues of primary concern to packers or to packers and growers? Primarily concerned to both, uh, really to growers, because they're the ones that are applying and using the materials in the field. And so some of these don't break down quickly, and so they may apply them um, for some, and then those residues are sticking around and they may make it to the destination market. So they need to know what markets are going to go to, what they're applying, what those markets allow. Um, there are some materials that are applied that break down very quickly. So even though our export partners have a very low MRL, we usually don't have any issues because they already broke down. A lot of our shippers are monitoring the residue tolerances so they know if they're getting hits on something that they shouldn't be getting a hit on. Mark, on another front, you are starting to develop some methods to reduce post-harvest decay. Yeah, this has been something we've been trying to get funding for a number of years. Um, it's, with HLB um, widespread, we have been for some time getting more decay on our fresh fruit. Um, and in some cases, when I first saw it, um, I noticed the problem. We went out to the grove and we could see the fruit decaying on the tree. So this is, um, and in some markets like Japan, um, when we're dealing with Diplodia stem end rot, um, that is actually an actionable pest for them, which means that they, even if, if there's a normal higher tolerance for decay, if they get even like, if they get a couple percent decay, they're going to make the packer repack the whole thing or regrade out. Um, it's a recondition the fruit upon arrival, which is an expensive matter. So this has been, uh, in some cases, um, impacting our arrivals and the cost of um, what we have to do the fruit when we get there. Um, and so we've been able to get now, actually the Florida Citrus Packers uh, received funding from TASC, which stands for Technical Assistance for Specialty Crops. It's there especially for market barriers and things that are, are preventing our fruit being able to make it to market. So we have this increased um, decay presence in the field and post-harvest. So we now have funding uh, for a multi-pronged approach. We're using with the University of Florida, my lab, also with, um, with um, uh, Liliana Cano's, Dr. Liliana Cano's lab in, in our lab, with Yu um, Wang, Dr. Yu Wang's in, in Lake Alfred doing sensory, and then also USDA next door. So it's a team approach. We're going to be looking all the way from the field, methods that we might be able to control and reduce not only diplodia, but also just decay in general from the field side, because now this stuff is starting to get established and getting going earlier than before in the field, and also post-harvest. And we're also looking at potential ways of early detection, early detection in the field in terms of 
um, the amount of decay that might be out there or the decay pressure that might be out there. Also even post-harvest, using things like volatile fingerprints, um, electronic noses or something like that to be able to smell if there is a presence or an increased presence of decay um, in a load coming in. Or not even decay yet, even it's just a, an increased presence of the fungus uh, in the tissue. Mark, could you tell us very quickly uh, in a minute or two about uh, you've got a new electronic grading unit coming? Yeah, so one of the things that um, we've been trying to do, or the industry has been interested is in all the research we're doing in the field, uh, how much, how is that impacting the amount of HLB-affected fruit versus healthy fruit? And uh, Dr. Brian Bowman at one time had an electronic optical sizer that he took out the field. It just did size. But with the technology now, we can get an optical unit that can do size, weight, color. Um, it can do blemishes. It can also do density. It can also measure um, internal bricks content. And so with all of that, then we can probably um, electronically evaluate the quality of that fruit, but also how much of it is actually HLB affected versus asymptomatic healthy fruit that we can actually market. Mark, thank you very much. Taylor, I'm sending this back to you. Very interesting with that new technology on the grading tool. Is it worth it for a grower to control Asian citrus psyllid populations in a grove that's already 100% infected with Wang Lung Bing disease? Research says it is. Ernie concludes today's podcast with an interview about that research and how to effectively and safely manage psyllids. I'm with entomologist Lucas Stolinski at the Citrus Research and Education Center, Lake Alfred. Lucas, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here today with you. Lucas, under 100% HLB infection, which we essentially have here in Florida, reducing the psyllids that spread the disease promotes plant health and yield. Could you agree with that and you can explain that to us? Yes. Um that uh, observation uh, actually initially came from some trials where uh, a long time ago where this wasn't the actual question that was being asked in those trials. However, uh, there was a set of treatments in um, uh, relatively large grove plots where there was psyllid control and no psyllid control. And otherwise, these plots were identical. And they all, virtually every tree in those, uh, in those groves were infected with HLB. And this was a, um, a long-term investigation that ran uh, from 2009 up, up to 2015. What was noticed over the course of several years is that uh, there were more boxes per acre harvested when insecticides were being applied than in plots without insecticides. But all the trees were equivalently infected. I wasn't actually running those trials. This was a series of trials that Phil Stansley was running. And I, and I spoke with him about it. And, and you know, we were scratching our heads uh, saying, you know, what the heck is going on? Why, why is reducing psyllids affecting yield? Um, I have subsequently uh, replicated those trials. Uh, and one of the early um, hypotheses we had was that maybe uh, the psyllids were continuously infecting the plants and by doing so uh, somehow changing the, the level of infection in the plants, making them more sick. And that maybe 
reducing psyllids uh, would, would, would prevent them, the plants from being more and more sick. Well, it turns out we were wrong. Um, it doesn't seem to be the exact mechanism. However, we weren't wrong in that reducing psyllids does improve health. It was just for a different reason. And while we know you've got to reduce psyllids or that it does promote good tree health and yield, you have to manage psyllids in the right way, like with well-timed sprays. Right. What we found um, is that the reason that appears to, um, what, why reducing psyllids seems to promote uh, plant health is that the, the psyllids themselves are injuring the plant, um, co combining with the, 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 what the, the pathogen itself does, uh, sort of additively reduce plant health. So, so keeping the psyllids off the plants, off the trees, is important. Um, and insecticides uh, are one important tool uh, that we have in our toolbox uh, with which we can, we can keep those psyllids off of trees. Now, it's, in, it's important um, to use these things uh, judiciously. For one reason, they're, they're not, they, they cost money, and they're not the only thing that's available to us. And, and the other thing is that we can create headaches by overusing them, uh, such as uh, causing resistance in psyllids. Um, and uh, we can sometimes inadvertently uh, shoot ourselves in the foot by uh, having unnecessary impacts on biological control agents uh, that uh, would otherwise uh, be beneficial to, uh, to our production system in groves. So what are the best times, briefly, to apply the pesticides? Really, after this is um, February, right now is a, is a good time uh, if, if it works with your grove's harvest schedule. Um, if you were to uh, get uh, your fruit off your trees right now, uh, this would be an optimal time. This is um, January and February when, when working around harvest is, is an optimal time to apply an insecticide. Uh, this is the time when uh, trees will begin flushing as, as, as warm spells start to appear. These, these warming trends in, in January and February um, are, seem to be uh, cropping up m more and more each year. Um, we are seeing psyllid populations rise now, but this is still a time when their reproduction is at its lowest throughout the year. So this is a weak link uh, where we can really have maximal impact on their populations uh, before they have the, the great majority of, of flush available in the spring. And this is also a time when biological control agents are in the most dormant stage of, of their life cycle. So we'll have um, the, the least uh, collateral impact on, on those natural enemies. Lucas, could we wrap up with, uh, I know you want to tell, urge growers to rotate their modes of action and a little bit, just a little bit about biological control. Rotating is critical, as I said, to um, to not uh, hampering uh, the, the or limiting the number of tools we have at our disposal. Because if we don't rotate, the cells become resistant to those insecticides, and then those insecticides become useless to us. 
So it's as simple as rotating five modes of action in sequence. Um, there are uh, more than five modes of action available to us. Uh, these are all in the Florida Citrus Pest Management Guide, and it really doesn't matter which one you start with as long as you rotate five. If you have resistance already to a neonicotinoid in particular, which, which, which is the one that's most often found in Florida, start with a non-neonicotinoid insecticide like a pyrethroid and then rotate five modes of action over the course of five sprays. This will likely require 20 weeks in total for you to, 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 to carry out this five spray rotation in your grove. But over that period of time, you'll find that the psyllid population will, uh, will reverse to its normal susceptible state and then maintain rotating those five modes of action. Now, biological control is out there, and, and those natural enemies uh, do play a role in suppressing psyllid populations. We've been able to demonstrate this, um, uh, particularly in, in groves where uh, insecticides are not used. However, they, they alone, left to their own devices, unfortunately, those biocontrol agents do not keep psyllids in check sufficiently uh, to maintain the types of yields that we re remember prior to HLB. So I, I suggest integrating a judicious use of insecticides with biological control. And this judicious use of insecticides includes this dormant winter spray and then spraying um, throughout the year when psyllid populations rise, um, one thing that may be useful is using uh, a threshold to know when, to, when we have too many psyllids in our groves. This requires monitoring those psyllids. If you monitor psyllids and find that you have, on average, more than 0 0.2 psyllids per tap, I would suggest uh, putting out uh, a spray for psyllids. You'll find that this may require up to five sprays annually. Lucas, thank you very much. Oh, you're very welcome. Taylor, we're sending this back to you. Again, really good information there with resistance always being a big concern. Thanks to our guests today for taking the time to update the industry on their research and of course our correspondent Ernie Neff. That'll do it for this episode. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or colleague. We'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.